Well, this morning we have the privilege of looking at a great text in Ephesians chapter 5. And so if you would, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2 today, but we'll read here this morning, starting in verse 1 all the way to verse 6. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper for among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now this text is the third of five texts that call the believer to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And we saw the first one in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, where it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that was the first call in the book of Ephesians to walk worthy of our calling, to walk worthy of all the riches and privileges of our salvation. And we called that, or we we saw there that that was an exhortation in that section to walk in unity. Salvation created unity, and and therefore we should walk in unity. And then in in verses 1 to 16, in in that section, Paul showed us even more about how God designed the church to promote and and grow together in unity. And then secondly, we saw the, the call to walk in holiness. We finished looking at that last week, starting in verse 17. The Legacy Standard Bible translates it more literally. It's, it's with the word therefore to begin that and to better bring out the, the clear division that's in the Greek text that all of these five sections have a, a therefore walk. And so the Legacy Standard Bible translation, verse 17 of chapter 4 says, Therefore this I say and testify in the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. And instead of walking like the Gentiles who were unsaved, unregenerate people, the Ephesian believers were to walk like the new creatures that they were in Christ. And a key verse there was verse 24 of chapter 4 where Paul says, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so the second therefore walk said in effect, do not walk like an unbeliever. Instead, walk like one who, walk like who you truly are in Christ. Walk in righteousness and holiness. And today we come to the third therefore walk statement. Therefore be imitators of God and walk 
in love. And there's really two commands here. The, the first is imitate God, and the second is to walk in love. But even these two really end up, as we'll see, coming together into one. Because how should we imitate God? And, and the answer, more specifically, is by walking in love. And everything else in this section to the end of verse 6 deals with what, what we would call false forms of love. And then if you note in verse 7 of chapter 5, it starts a new section with the fourth therefore walk. Chapter 5, verse 7, Therefore do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And so verse 7 starts with the word therefore, and then in verse 8 it says walk as children of light. And so when we get to that section, we'll see that we're there to walk as as children of light. The, the word to walk as people of the light rather than people of darkness. But today, we're just going to look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. And so we're going to look at this amazing text that, that calls us to walk in love. And we'll spend our time together, again, just focusing on verses 1 and 2. And then next week, when we come back, we'll look at verses 3 to 6, which tell us not to walk in these false, worldly imitations of love. When we think about love, love is the greatest commandment. Love is the height of all moral virtue. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And love has been enabled by our salvation. And what I mean by that is that just like unity was built into our salvation so that living in unity meant living according to salvation... And holiness was part of salvation so that living a holy life fit with salvation and with who we were made to be in Christ in our salvation. So here, a life of love fits with salvation. You see, in a sense, we could say that we were saved to love. We were saved to love. And love should be the result of that salvation. Salvation equips us and enables us and prepares us for love. And so when we live out our salvation, we will see love. Now I said a lot just there, and uh, let's go back a little bit and and look at some of these things. Remember when they asked Jesus, what was the greatest commandment? And this is in Matthew chapter 25. It's a couple places through the New Testament, but go ahead and and flip over to Matthew chapter 25 as we kind of get going here this morning. Uh, I said, I think I said Matthew 25. Matthew 22, verse 35 says, And one of them, a lawyer, asked him, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so the great commandment is to love God with all of who we are. And then from there to love others, love our neighbor as ourself. And everything else in the law and the prophets Everything else in Scripture really builds on that and, and summarizes that according to Jesus. All of the commandments of Scripture point to loving God and loving others. And so love is the great commandment. 
Love God and love your neighbor. Look at, uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Of course, normally when we're talking about love, we'd go to verses 1 to, to 4 to 7 there. But uh, look at verses 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Paul says there, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And then verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 1 begins with this command, Pursue love. And so love is the greatest of virtues. It begins the list, you know, we, it, we should say maybe it, it tops the list of the fruit of the Spirit, right? What is the fruit of the Spirit? It's, it's love, joy, peace, and so forth. Lo- love makes spiritual gifts truly spiritual, truly effective. And love is also the fulfillment of the law. If, if you want to fulfill God's moral will, then look no further than love. And so Galatians 5 and verse 13 says, For though you were called to freedom, brothers, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus told us to love our enemies in the Sermon on the Mount, and he concluded that section with the call to be perfect as our Father, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. As though the idea there is that that love for those who don't love us is, is the height of perfection. If we would be perfect in true religion, then we must learn to love. We need to love God. We need to love others. We must learn to love according to Scripture's definition of love as well because the world has corrupted our idea of love. And so we must learn true biblical love. We need to know what it is and what it isn't. And that's, that's what our text is going to do for us this morning. It's going to teach us to love. And we're going to learn this morning to love God and love others. Again, salvation should make us love and the worthy walk requires love. And so let's get into it. And and we're going to call it this morning, we're going to call it two exhortations. Two exhortations, and I didn't really know what to, how to expand on those. These are really two exhortations to love. They're two exhortations to walk worthy of our salvation. They're two exhortations that call us to follow God. See, we're to imitate God and, and walk in love just as Christ did. And so we're going to call it this morning, two exhortations to follow God's example. Two exhortations, two commandments, two calls to follow God's example. And this is really amazing if you think about it. Walking worthy of salvation means following after God's example. See, we're called here to imitate God and to love as Christ loved. And so what a salvation we must have if walking worthy of that requires this, that we would follow God in love. So we have a great salvation that allows us to love. And as we go through each of these, we're, we're going to have two parts to the, the two of these exhortations. First, we're going to see the exhortation itself, and then we're going to look at the example that's given. And so in the first case, we're going to see the exhortation to be imitators of God. 
And then the example begins with the word as, as beloved children. And then the second, verse 2, walk in love, is the exhortation. And then the example is the example of Christ. And so again in verse 2, as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so there's going to be two exhortations and two examples. One one for each, one example for each, making a, a four-point outline this morning. And so the first in our outline and really the first exhortation is the call to imitate God. The call to imitate God in verse 1. Therefore, Paul says, be imitators of God. Now this is the only place in Scripture where we're called to imitate God. You know, there's there's other places that are, are similar, like I already mentioned Matthew 5.48 where Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or Leviticus 11.44 and other places in Scripture where it says, I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves and be holy for I am holy. And so we're called to follow God's example in holiness. In Luke 6.35, Jesus says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. For you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Then He says, Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And so Jesus calls us to follow God's example in love there. But we're to imitate Christ in a number of passages. Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And so we're called to imitate Christ. But here, again, the only place in Scripture where we're called directly to be imitators of God. Not to imitate Christ, not just to imitate an attribute, but to imitate God himself. And again, when we think about what Paul's saying here, this is really quite extraordinary if you think about it. Be like God. Brothers and sisters, be like God. And you just think, wow, that is, that is huge. That is massive. That is infinite. And when I say it that way, when I say be like God, maybe that reminds us of what happened in the garden. Right? You, you've heard that before. You will be like God. The devil is the one who originally offered Eve this promise of being like God. And before that, I, I guess we could say that, that God had made us in His image. And so in a sense, we were made to be like God in some way. We were made originally without sin to represent God on the earth and to be like Him. And the devil then offered mankind a false way to be like God. And through Adam and Eve's sin, the, the likeness of God that, that we had was marred, but not totally lost. But then through salvation, and this is kind of where it, what brings us back to our, our line of thinking here, but through salvation, God not only restores what was lost by Adam's sin, but He also then conforms us to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so God in salvation is restoring us to make us like Him again as we originally were and even even more than what Adam was. You see, when we're called to be conformed to the image of Christ, we're really being called to be conformed to the image of God because according to Hebrews chapter 1, God has spoken to us 
by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. And Hebrews 1.3 says, He, that is Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And so the Son of God is the true likeness of God and our salvation again is designed to conform us to his image. And so God is working in his people to make us like Christ who is the image of God. And so what was lost in the garden is restored through the Son. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. We're, we're beholding the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are being transformed into the same image. We are being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so the Lord who is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, he is, we are being transformed into him, his image from the, by the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what we call the, the doctrine of sanctification. We are being made more and more like Christ if we are saved people. And the more we're like Christ, the more we are being made like God. And so God is, is making us like himself. Turn to uh, 1 John chapter 3 with me. Let's look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. It's a bit of an exclamation, I would, I would say, in verse 1, where John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has, who thus hopes in Him purifies Himself as He is pure. And so John tells us that we are, we are God's children and it's in God's great love that he has made us the children of God. And we don't know what we're going to quite be yet, but we know that when Christ comes, when Christ returns, we are going to be like him. We're going to be made like him. We're going to be transformed into the image of Christ, who is the image of God. And if we have that hope, if that's what we're looking forward to in our salvation, that we're looking for that day when we will sin no more. Then John says in verse 3 that if we have that hope, we're going to purify ourselves. There's going to be a work of sanctification, of growing to be like Christ in this world. And if you're a believer in Christ, this process of sanctification has already been begun. We've been adopted into God's family. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on us and He dwells in us and He's transforming us to be like Christ, again, who is the image of God. And this process of sanctification and growth to be like Christ began the minute that we were born again. We were made new in Christ as we saw last week. And from then on, there's this growth. We have put on Christ and we now need to grow to become who we were created to be in Christ when we were born again. And part of that means being imitators of God and working to follow the pattern of God's character. 
And so when we go back to Ephesians and we think about what does it mean to be an imitator of God? What are we talking about when we talk about imitating God? And, and what we're talking about here is, is imitating Him in, in the moral sphere. We're talking about righteousness and holiness and God's character. You know, I think if we thought about the, the fruit of the Spirit, we, we would be on the right track there. If we think about love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control, gentleness, these are the, the things that we are called to do when we imitate God. These are the areas that we can imitate God. You see, we can't imitate God's omniscience. Omniscience is the fact that God is all-knowing, that He knows all things. We can't, we can't follow that. We can't imitate God's omnisapience. Omnisapience is the, the idea that God is all-wise. We can't be all-wise. We can have some wisdom, but we can't be all-wise. We can't imitate God's omnipresence. Right? God is everywhere at all times. The whole of His being is in every place because God doesn't take up space or, or have physical dimensions. And so we can't imitate his omnipresence. We can't imitate God's omnipotence. God is all powerful. That's omnipotence. He is all powerful. Nothing is too hard for him. Everything that God does is easy. Everything that we do is not easy. We can't imitate God in those things, but we can imitate his character. We can imitate his holiness. We can imitate his righteousness. And so when theologians talk about God, when they teach on the attributes of God, they often will divide them into categories, and, and sometimes they divide them into categories called the communicable attributes of God and the incommunicable attributes of God. Communicable and incommunicable attributes. The, one of the ways that, that we think about this is com, incommunicable attributes are attributes of God that, that He cannot communicate with us that he that we cannot share in things like i just mentioned omnipotence and omnipresence and those things we we can't we can't share in those attributes of god god is unchangeable and and we can't be that way we are changeable and it's good for us to change but communicable attributes are those things that that can be communicated to the creature and these are the ones that we can imitate the in the, the communicable attributes of god and our text then is calling us to imitate those things about God that we can imitate. You know, if we just go back to the verse we looked at last week, the last verse that we looked at in chapter 4, verse 32, it says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And so God forgave us in Christ, and we should imitate Him in the way that he forgives. That's an example of a communicable attribute of God, a, a, something that we can do, that, that we can follow God in. He forgives, we should forgive. Now God loved us when we were his enemies and he sent his son to become our savior, to earn a perfect righteousness in our place and to pay the penalty for our sins. And we should make it our aim then, according to this, to, to love our enemies and to forgive those who sin against us. Now, in order to, to do this, in order to be imitators of God, 
We're going to have to know God, right? If you think about this, right? How are we going to imitate God if we don't know him? And so we're going to have to know God and we're going to have to study. This is going to require us to learn about God. We need to be people who know our God so well that we begin to become like him. You know, it makes me think of this, this imitating God. Maybe a, a helpful picture of this would be some of those couples that you know that have been married for so long that they're, they're like one another in, in almost every way. They become more and more like one another. And in, in the same way, we need to know God so well that we just become like Him and we know how He would respond. And so we learn to respond in the same ways. Now, Paul says that we're to be imitators of God in verse 1, as beloved children. And so number two in your outline, we see this example of children. So imitate God as beloved children. We're to imitate God as beloved children. And to really understand what this is all about, what Paul's saying here, we need to kind of get into the mind of the ancient Greeks. And and I, I would guess that... that here in Lacrete, we have very few only children. Is it, do you know what I mean when I say an only child? Like you're the only child of your parents. Could, could you just put up your hand for me for one minute if you're an only child? Very few. Okay. I think I only saw two there. I, there might have been some half-hearted hand raising. I'm not sure, but, um, it's kind of scary to raise your hand in church. Hey, Rod, Rod was telling us about that. So Rod from Grace Life is visiting us. Good to have the Silvas with us talking about raising hands and stuff at this crazy conference they went to last week. Anyways, we got a couple of only children in our midst, but most of you, there's, you got lots of brothers and sisters and that's great. But when I grew up, and I don't know how they would think about that here, but when I grew up, at least at our house, there, you know, the, the view was that these kind of only children were, were like troubled children. They were, they were bad children. They were, you know, in, in my house, my mom might have called them spoiled brats, you know, and that's maybe how the world outside of Lacrete, I'm not sure what, where, what you guys think, but that's kind of how often the world views these only children. They get all the stuff and they're just spoiled little brats. But the ancient Greeks, they thought about this just totally different than we do. And, uh, and, and they used this word beloved to speak about an only child. And, and they thought of this only child as a beloved child. They, they thought of them as a contented child. They, they thought of these children as, as having all of the love of their parents. You see, the, the love of their parents wasn't spread out amongst 12 of them or 10 of them or whatever. It was just all in their mind focused on the one child. And because they had all of the love of their parents in this undivided way, these children were thought of as being very content children. Not spoiled brats, very content. They, they were, they were content with their spoiling or whatever in the ancient Greek mind. And, and and so they, because of this, they had a, a security from this love that made them content. And so they were these beloved children. And what a great picture this is then of the true believer. Because we have received so much love from our Heavenly Father that we are secure and content. We have, if we can think about it this way, as God's children, we have all of His love. 
Because unlike human people, God can pour all of his love on each and every one of his children because God is infinite. And so God's undivided love is towards us, again, because he is infinite. And God gives the fullness of his love to all of his children. And so we are his children, right? We've been adopted into God's family. And just to kind of see that in, in one place, we've, we've talked about adoption before, but just if you go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, it says there, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And so God chose us and he predestined us for adoption. And he predestined us for this adoption to himself and he's, he's brought us to himself as his sons. And so it's no wonder that John says in John 3, 1 that we read earlier that what, what kind of a love, see what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God and so we are. And the thinking here then, according to Paul and according to the kind of ancient Greek mindset, is that if, if God so loved us and we became his special children, then, then we ought to be those who admire God and imitate him. And that's the idea here. We are, we're to imitate God just like a beloved child who gets kind of all of the love of their parents is going to follow their parents' example. So we as God's children should follow his example and learn to be like him. And so that's the example of the children under the first exhortation. Now we go to the second exhortation. And the command then, number three in your outline, the command is to walk in love. Walk in love, verse two, and walk in love as Christ loved us. And we'll, we'll just stop there for now. Walk in love. And the way that we're then to specifically imitate God is, is explained further in verse two, right? Verse one doesn't really tell us in what way, but, but if we want to get specific about this, Paul has in mind that we would walk in love. We're going to imitate God by walking in love. Verse one is general. Verse two is specific. To be an imitator of God is really to love because God is love, right? In 1 John, go to, let's, let's go there. Let's go to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another. Let us love one another for God is love. Or sorry, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so love is a sign that we know God. And love is a sign that we have been born of God. Whereas a lack of love shows that we do not know God and that we're not born of God. John puts it both ways. And the command in our text to, to walk is a, a present tense command. And, and so we're to continually and regularly love. Love is to be the characteristic and regular pattern of our life. It's to be a habitual thing that we do all the time. It's just to continually love. 
Again, love is the height of moral excellence. It's the fulfillment of the whole law. It's better than the most eminent spiritual gifts. It's the new commandment that Jesus gave us. And again, it's one of the chief proofs of the new birth. We were saved to walk in love. But before I can say much about love, I I need to give you a biblical definition of love because our culture around us, our wicked culture has taken love captive and turned it on its head. The love of the world is, is really more about self than it is about others. The world's love is a, really about how someone or someone else makes me feel. And if I feel good, then it's love. And when the feelings go away, then it's, it's no longer love. And, and so love then in that kind of a definition is really a selfish, self-centered kind of thing. It's about how it makes me feel, how that other person and what they do for me. And we'll talk more about these false loves again when we look at verses 3 to 6 next time. But right now, we're if we're already in 1 John, which my, I am in my Bible, look at 1 John 3 and verse 14. Let's talk about what is, what is love. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But again, we ask, well, what is love? Well, look at verse 16. By this we know love. By this we know love. So we, we know that we've passed from life into death because we love the brothers. Verse 14. That's how we know that. And if we, if we love, we've, we've been transformed by God's grace. But what does it mean to love? Well, verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You see how biblical love is basically the opposite of the counterfeit nonsense that our culture feeds us? True love lays down its life for its object. True love is sacrificial, not selfish. It's not about me, it's about the other person. And this sacrificial nature of love shows us why love is such a good sign of genuine salvation. Because to genuinely sacrifice oneself for the benefit of another person, that's not natural to the unsaved person. This is something that's really supernatural that happens in us by God's salvation. A natural person might sacrifice a great many things to get something that they really want, but at the core, they're always selfish. Love, on the other hand, is not seeking its own benefit, but seeking the benefit of others. And in order to be able to give up self or to deny ourselves, we have to live for something that's greater than ourselves, right? We have to have a focus outside of ourselves, and and the something greater that we focus on is on God himself, You see, worship becomes the fuel that drives sacrificial love, right? We do it out of worship. And so if your love is lacking, if your love is lagging, then check your worship. Because we can only lay down our lives for the brethren when we do so for the honor and glory of God. Because again, true love is sacrificial. And how can I deny myself? I am myself. And so God has to do something to, to give me a greater object, a greater focus. Now, when we think about true love, not only is it sacrificial, but it's also what we sometimes call unconditional. 
It's given for the benefit of the other person regardless of whether they deserve it or not. Again, it's given that way because it's done as an act of worship to God. In Romans 5.8, Paul says, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so again, what is love? Love is right here. Love is Jesus laying down His life for us. And love is... God sending Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, so much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. And so biblical love is given regardless of whether the other person is worthy or not. Just like we were entirely unworthy, but God sent His Son for us. So it doesn't matter if the other person is worthy. True biblical love sacrifices itself for the other person no matter what. And so then to kind of wrap up the definition of love, here I think is a good definition of love. Love is giving up yourself to seek the highest benefit for the loved one, whether they deserve it or not, for the glory of God. Let me say that again. Love is giving up yourself to seek the highest benefit for the one loved, whether they deserve it or not, for the glory of God. And of course, the highest good that we can do for another human being, the highest thing that we can offer them is to bring them closer to God. True love then is, is really always God-centered. Biblical love is always God-centered. It it comes from God in the new birth. It brings people to God, and it's done for God. And so love is God-centered. And so as we think about this commandment then to walk in love, to, to really lay down our lives for those around us, to seek the highest good for them, whether they deserve it or not, and and to really do it all as an act of worship to the Lord Jesus Christ and to God the Father, we need to ask ourselves as we think about this command that Paul gives us, how is your love? We really need to think about that this morning. How, How is your love? Are you walking in love? And I'm not, I'm not saying it this way to, to condemn you. I'm just, I want you to examine yourself. Are you walking in love? Are you purposely and consciously denying yourself to benefit others? Again, are you purposely and consciously denying yourself to benefit others? And then to make it really practical, who? You know, who are you doing that for? Is it only because they love you back? Is it be only because it makes you feel good when you love that person and they give you back what you want? Or is it for higher reasons? Are you doing it for the glory and honor of God? Are you denying yourself for others? You see, the glory of God ought to motivate us to lay down our lives for others. And when you think about what Jesus bore for us and all that he did for us in our salvation, how much are we willing to bear for his sake And for those that we love, how much are we willing to bear? Also, since love is God-centered and seeks God for those we love, it shows us again how important it is for us to pursue God. You know, for love's sake, we ought to grow in our knowledge and delight 
in God so that we can really love others in, in the full way, right? We need to know God and, and seek Him for people. Then, then we need to pursue God in order to really love others. You see, Christ loved us by pointing us to God. And we need to love others in the same way. Love seeks the highest good and, and God always is the highest good. There's no higher good. There's no better good than God Himself. And with that, then we go to the example of Christ in our text. The rest of verse two tells us how to love like Christ. And so we saw the, the call to, to walk in love. And now we see number four, the example of Christ. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, we're not merely to, to love, we're to love as Christ. We're to love others as Christ loved us. We're to love God even as Christ loved us. And, and that's our standard. This is our calling in love, to love as Christ loved. And here we have the perfect picture of love. We are to love like him who loved us. And so we ask, well, how did Christ love us? And we already saw that in Romans chapter 5. We were the most undeserving we were the least worthy. We were sinners. We were enemies of God. We were hostile to God through our wicked works. And yet Jesus Christ gave himself up for us. He came to die for us. And when we think about the love of Christ, his love did us the most good. His love brought us eternal life. His love reconciled us to the holy God. By his sacrifice of himself, Jesus reconciled us to God so that we can enjoy him forever in heaven. And even now in this life, we can, we've been brought the greatest good through Jesus' love. Jesus loved us by giving up himself and giving himself to us to seek our highest benefit, although we didn't deserve it. And he himself did it all for God's glory. He did it all for the, the glory of his God and Father. And so Jesus Christ loved us like no other. Notice that our text says that he gave himself up for us. Nobody made him do it. He did it himself. His, the circumstances of his death were not beyond his control. And because of his great love for us, he handed himself over as an offering to God. Jesus himself said before he made that sacrifice in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus laid down his life as an offering and a sacrifice. This is language from the Old Testament sacrificial system. You see, our sin separated us from God. And our sin separated us from God in really in two ways. It separated us from God relationally and it separated us from God judicially. Sin broke the relationship between us and God and, and sin had also separated us from God so that we were under his wrath. Judicially, as, as a just and a good God, God had to punish our sins. And relationally, sin caused hostility between us and God. And both of those separations were dealt with by Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus bore the wrath of God for our sins by taking the penalty for our sins. He took the, the just penalty for our sins. He took the judicial separation and he, and he made that right by, by paying the penalty for our sins. And that offering allowed God to be just and to forgive us of our sins, making peace with us 
and restoring our relationship to God. And so Jesus' love and sacrifice of himself made a way for sinful man to be made right with a holy God. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, then I need to tell you the way to, to have what Jesus did for us applied to you as well. You need to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And He promises that He will forgive your sins and make you right with this holy God. And so the way to receive the benefits of Jesus' sacrifice, the way to forgiveness and reconciliation with God is to put your trust in Jesus Christ and to trust Him to cleanse you of your sin and make peace between you and God. And as we go back and look at our text again, Notice how God responded to Jesus' offering. It says again that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And the idea of this fragrant offering is this idea that God is satisfied. That justice has been achieved. That atonement has been made. Our sins have been forgiven. The sins of everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ has been forgiven. Jesus' offering was a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God, and God has accepted His sacrifice. And so if you are in Christ, you are right with God. You are justified. And that means that because of Jesus Christ, you yourself as a believer, you are a fragrant aroma in the nostrils of God. His offering has made us right with God and and His offering was for us. His offering was on our behalf. He died in our place and, and that is love. And that is how we should walk as well. That is how we should serve others. What Jesus did for us, He did as an act of worship and all of this sacrificial language is really the, the language of Old Testament worship. And so if we're going to love in the way that, that Jesus loved, we're going to have to give up our lives for one another. And, and we're to do this as an act of worship. We're to, to live for the glory of God. And our aim should be to love others as worship to God. Our aim should be to please God as we pour out our lives for Him in the service of others. And through Christ, because of His offering, our offering will be acceptable to God. And so, brothers and sisters, this is our call. To walk in love, to love one another. We're to be imitators of God by walking in love. And this is what it means to walk worthy of our salvation. This is a command here for each and every believer. These are two exhortations to follow God's example. And these aren't for elite Christians. These are for each and every one of us. This is for each and every person in Christ. We are to walk in love. Paul doesn't say mature believers walk in love and the rest of you just just do the best you can not to sin. Paul says walk in love. A, A walk worthy of our salvation is a walk in love. We are all called as believers in Christ to love as Christ loved us. And so we'll close this morning with the words of our Lord Jesus in John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And then in John 15 and verse 12, 
Again, Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And again, in verse 17, Jesus says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we just thank you for the great love of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this great salvation that you have given us that has transformed us and made us new in Christ. And that this salvation that you have given us has has made it possible that we would love one another. When we think about loving as Christ loved, Father, all of us recognize we fall short. And so we ask, Father, that you would forgive us for that. But we ask as well with that, that you would help us to lay down our lives for one another as an act of worship towards you. That we would be motivated by your glory and your greatness and just living our lives for you, that we would love one another. When we look at Christ and we see his love, Father, we admire it. When we look at your love, we, we admire it. We are beloved children. And so, Father, help us to follow your example. Help us to be like our Father and like our brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to love that all men might know that we are your disciples, that we might glorify you in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.